always find a way. You can always find a way to justify your sin. Now, John chapter 12, let me set the scene. Here they are in Bethany. And in Bethany, here's Jesus, this small little town about two miles away from Jerusalem, just over the top of the hill where the ascension happened. Here Jesus is at Bethany, and he's with some normal characters. He's with Martha. And Martha's serving. She was rebuked by that before, but there she is serving again, and Jesus lets it happen. It's just part of her personality. And then Lazarus is there. Lazarus has just gotten resurrected, and Lazarus is there. I, I like to think about what my last meal would be if you had a last meal, but Lazarus got to pick his first meal. Like, what would your first meal be after you're resurrected? What do you want to eat for the first time? And then Mary's there. The somewhat sensual, somewhat emotional Mary. And there she is with this expensive ointment, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And fragrance fills the room. And the ambience of that meal and the resurrected Lazarus and Martha in the kitchen. You know, she took a master class in hummus and she's learned how to do that. And then all of these other people, they're all there. Mary's there. and every, It's just this beautiful, sweet moment. And then Judas finds a way to justify his sin. Let's read John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas, Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. You can always find a way to justify your sin. It was this beautiful moment until Judas kind of, kind of just intersects himself into this narrative. And I don't know what Judas was like, but I always think it's helpful to try to imagine. You've heard me say that before. I imagine Judas like this small little accountant from Brooklyn. I don't know if that's true or not. With this like nasally voice that would have said something like, why, why was this anointment not sold for the hundred? You know, that kind of like annoying character who's dipping his hand into the money bag as all the tithes and all the offerings come in. He's turning, in this very instance, he's turning into a Pharisee before our very eyes. Self-righteous. Hypocritical. And that Pharisaism is going to kill him. Or rather, he's going to kill himself with it. Because he won't be able to understand the grace and the mercy of God, why God would go to the cross, and he could not possibly understand that God would have, yes, forgiven him too if he had sought after him. And his weight of Phariseeism would eventually kill him. Well, here we see 
that he's justifying his actions. Look at what he says, verse six. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief, but then he justified his thievery. He justified what he was going to do with the moral imperative. The moral imperative is, why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So he's overlaying this spiritual pietism, this moralism that cloaks his sinfulness. He's justifying his sinfulness with moral piety. And that is so evil. We've all done it before to some degree. And people around the world have killed and started wars over things like this. I'm going to find a way to get rid of those people. And then I'm going to overlay my spiritual piety and my moralism on top of it to justify it so it somewhat cloaks it. Because who would disagree with sell it and give it to the poor? After all, Jesus had been preaching that the whole time. Everybody knew that. I mean, that was a a common thing that Jesus loved the poor and wanted to take care of them. So I'm sure he thought everybody was just going to buy right into it. Salman Rushdie I never thought in my wildest dream I would ever quote Salman Rushdie in a sermon. You don't know who he is, so that's good for both of us. Uh, But he said, from the very beginning, men have used God to justify the unjustifiable. Men have used God to justify the unjustifiable. And you can imagine Judas, can't you? You can imagine Judas even justifying it in his mind. I've been working so hard. I mean, I should get a little cut. I'm the accountant for this whole operation. It's kind of grown. Somebody has to think about that. So I should get a little cut, just a a couple coins every now and then out of here. Because this whole thing is about Peter, James, and John anyway. They're always with him at the Transfiguration. They're always with him at these other places. This whole thing is about them. So maybe I should just take a a little cut for myself. He created this moral narrative where he started to feel superior to others and self-righteous. And then Jesus says, verse 7, and again, I don't know how he said this. I like to think, as I've told you before, that Jesus often said things with a, a wink and a smile. I don't think he did it this time. I think he said, leave her alone. Get your, get your dirty paws away from this woman who is loving me and serving me, Judas. I think that's probably how he said it. Then we see the chief priests. Now look at verse 9 and following. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So here... Uh, what Lazarus did was, I'm going to justify my sin because Jesus doesn't know what's best for me. He doesn't know what I need for my comfort, for my joy. Now the chief priests justify their sin, and they're covering up an intended murder because they believe they don't know what's best for them. These people don't know what's best for them. They're all running after this guy, the Messiah. They should be coming to us. This Messiah, he doesn't play by our same rules. Uh, he heals on the Sabbath. Uh, he allows people to eat on the Sabbath. He does all these crazy things. That's, he's not playing by our system. They have no idea what's best for them. So let's find a way to destroy the evidence. And what is the evidence? Well, in this case, it happens to be a person, Lazarus. All these people are showing up. I mean, you can imagine how it worked through the towns. Did you hear about Lazarus? Yeah, poor guy. Heard he died. No, he's not dead. <laughs> 
He's alive. He's alive. Yes, and you can actually see him. You, you go over to Bethany. He's having a meal with Jesus tonight and Mary and Martha. You can go over, you, you can go see him. I mean, he's actually alive. I've got to see this with my own eyes. So everybody's showing up. And all of these people are sensing the power of the cross and the resurrection. And many people are going away saying, yes, we saw it. We knew he died. We are planning his funeral service. And now we see him, this Messiah. He must be true. He must be real. And the Pharisees and the chief priests said, we've got to get rid of the evidence. If you're not a believer, let me just suggest this. Uh, Christianity is a religion based on evidence. Yeah, faith alone in Christ. We're going to talk about that in point two. But there's also empirical, historical evidence that is the reason why people believe. And the reason why people came to Jesus. They saw his miracles. They saw his resurrection. These things were not hidden. They were not done in a corner. They were not far off. They were done in one of the main intersections of the entire world at the time. Many were going off and seeing Jesus. These chief priests thinking they don't know what's best for them. Now let's go back to the point. You can always find a way to justify your sin. It's happened from the very beginning. Let's just take a few examples as they pop into my head. Adam and Eve. That serpent made me do it. If the serpent wasn't here, I would have never done it. That woman made me do it. If the woman didn't lead me this way, I never would have done it. Abraham. Uh, You told me I was going to be the father of nations. Sarah can't have anybody, so let me take your servant, Hagar. I'll sleep with her. I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to enjoy it. This is just, you know, a proactive way to get around what God has called us to do. Moses, if these people were not so belligerent, I wouldn't have struck the rock twice. I would have never done that. But these people are so belligerent that I had to strike it twice. They drove me to my anger. David, I mean, I built this thing from scratch. I was the runt of the litter. And look at what I've done. I've united all the kingdom. I've got rid of all of these things. I I could take a springtime off. Sit on the roof, look at Bathsheba, and then basically rape her, and then cover up that sin by killing her husband. Think of the way you justify it all the time. Jonah, th- these people don't deserve the gospel. They're vile, they're contemptible, they're awful people. These Ninevites, why would we ever share the gospel with them? No, I want you to share the gospel with them. No, I don't, I don't want to share the gospel with them. I want to share the gospel with other Jewish people. I like the Jewish people. I don't like the Ninevites. No, I want you to share the gospel with them. Over and over again, throughout scriptures, we see many people that show us that our heart is so prone to want to justify our sin. Now let's take it a little bit closer to home. You can always justify another drink, right? Which is now, there's a couple of sins. I'm going to talk about them in the fall. But there's a couple of sins that are so commonplace in Christianity that never used to be commonplace that we need to kind of pull back the reins on. And one of them is the consumption of alcohol or pot or whatever you're consuming to kind of numb yourself out. You can always justify doing it, though, either in celebration or you've had a long day. You can always justify a quick look, a quick glance at pornography. If my wife was taking better care of herself, if she showed me any attention, 
but here I am on this business trip and nobody knows, just a little look. You can always justify, that's another one that's prevalent in our society and far too accepted. You can always justify lust. This is the one that I see all the time. I wouldn't have lusted if she wore different clothes, more modest clothes. (laughs) That's so crazily absurd and slightly abusive that you're going to blame her for your lust. And yes, maybe modesty should be a thing, but don't justify your sin based on her. Or here's another one that's prevalent in our society, lying and gossip and speaking ill of people. Like rampantly, people that we don't disagree with, the way that Christians speak about people we don't disagree with is borderline obscene. Or gossip, the classic one that we talk about in the South, justify our sin of gossip by overlaying it with a prayer request. You know, we should really pray for Susie. She's a real mess right now. Let me tell you exactly what has happened. There's no prayer. You just talk about maybe praying at some point in the future. You can justify your anger. If you, if you had kept this house up when I got home, I wouldn't be so frustrated. You could justify stealing from a company. They brought that person in. They're paying the same salary. I've been here for 10 years. They pay them the same salary as me. I'm going to find a way to steal some time or some resources from the company. You can justify, here's another one, uh, gluttony. There's always, there's always a reason to have an extra scoop of ice cream. And I'm going to stop there because that hits way too close to home. <laughs> because I could eat my weight in ice cream. But the truth of the matter is we're, we're to take all of these things into account as we live the Christian life, are we not? And we can always find a way to justify them. Now, for a believer, let me suggest this. If you're a believer, I want you to not think about your sin. You know your sins. Like, you probably, you probably have those figured out. Like, you know what they are. Now, if you want to really attack and fight that sin, start to think about how and why and when you justify it. You have to, you have to put the ammunition on that target. You have to figure out why you're trying to justify this sin before you even get to this sin. If you're a non-believer, I want to suggest this. Uh, I'll say sometimes to my non-believing friends and maybe even some of you, I'll say, look, it's the power of the cross. You need the power of the cross. And you'll say something like this. Why would I ever need the gospel? I'm not a bad person. Why would I ever need for somebody to forgive me? Andy, I'm not even as hypocritical as you are. Uh, you know, I'm not even as mean as you are. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty moral person. Here's the problem. If you're not a believer, the reason why is because you haven't seen how horrendous your sin is. You've been justifying it your whole life and make excuses for your whole life so you don't see the need of the cross. And so I would, if you're not a believer, pray this prayer. God, show me my sin. If this is true, if this is really true, if what Andy's saying is right, show me how I'm actually sinning and how I'm justifying it. And to go from there, look, we all want to be justified. We want to be justified by our works. We want our looks to justify us. We want our athleticism to justify us. We want our wealth to justify us. We want all of these things to kind of justify us. We want to be told by somebody, and most likely everybody, you're right. You're just. You're the one that has it together. And it is possible to live a life where you're freeing yourself from having to prove yourself right. But it comes through the second point, which is this. 
but only faith in Christ can justify you. Only faith in Christ can justify you. There's always a way to justify your sin. But really what you want to do is make something right that's not right. But on the other side, there is a way to live a life that's beautiful and free and God-glorifying and joyous and obedient all at the same time. And it comes with faith in Christ that can justify us. I'm going to put up the uh, Orda Salutis, uh, which is, uh, this is the order of salvation. And we teach this in new members class. You might know this. You read theology. All of you should have this memorized. Uh, but the Order of Salutis, this is a classic way to think about, this is how God saves us. You're elected by God. You're called by God. You're regenerated. means he changes your heart. And then all of that is before you really kind of know what's happening. (laughs) And then you're converted. And then you say, yes, I want to believe. And when conversion happens, you're justified by faith alone. Meaning uh, you are now made right in God's eyes by faith alone in Christ. Now, let me stop right here and say this. The temptation is to think that it's your faith that justifies you. But faith is a gift. You can't even believe unless God gives you that gift. It's faith alone. And it's a faith alone in Christ that Christ is enough, that his death and resurrection is enough to make you right in the sight of God. Justification is in the middle there because I think it was Charles Simeon, it might have been Calvin. I know it's not me. I can't remember exactly who coined it first. But justification is the hinge for the whole thing. It's right in the middle as the hinge. And after you're justified, you're adopted, you're brought into the family of God, and he's never going to tear up the papers. And then you're sanctified, and that's where a lot of us are now, trying to learn how to work out our salvation fear and trembling and to grow in holiness and perseverance is what keeps us faithful to the end where we get to experience glory all of this is done through and with Christ there's not one of these that you do on your own all of these are the prompting of the Holy Spirit done with and through Christ matter of fact J.I. Packer says it this way the entire order salutis from beginning with regeneration as its first stage, is bound to the mystical union with Christ. There is no gift that has not been earned by him. It's this beautiful picture of how you're healed. I I have to have a um, surgery in a couple weeks. Don't worry. Not that you were. Uh, And the doctor sat down with me, and he said, Andy, here's the deal. We've done all the scans. Here's what has to happen. Uh, These are the things you need to do in preparation. This is what will happen during the operation. This is what you do post-operation, right? But all of that, all of that is the process of healing. All of the order salutis from election and calling and regeneration up to glorification, all of that is the process of you being saved. Now, why do I bring up the order salutis? Well, one point is this. I wanted to make sure that I highlighted where justification was at that that hinge in the middle of all of this. And it's only faith in Christ that can justify us, faith alone that can justify us. But then in the next part of this passage, the rest of chapter 12, we see this being played out in a really unique way. People are already coming to uh, 
to Jesus. You know, they're already seeing Lazarus. They're already coming to him. Then we see this triumphal entry. We start to see this conversion. We start to see people seeking him out in verse 20 and following. Then we start to see people realize that they're kind of adopted. We start to see people persevere. We start to see people who start to believe. We start to see all of this. And then it ends kind of in verse 43 where it says, for they love the glory that comes more from uh, more, they, let me start that over. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It all ends with this like eye towards glorification. And there's kind of a little like lesson in the order salutis in these next parts. Now I'm just going to highlight three of them for you and we're going to do this quickly. I'm going to skip over the triumphal entry because you've heard that preached all the time. And we'll preach on that again. But if there's one part of this passage that you've heard preached, it's that one over and over again. Jesus comes in on the donkey. You got it? Everybody got that? All right, good. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, there are Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And in case you wanted to know, uh, they asked me when we redid this room and that room, thank you for your generosity and all those pledges in the campaign. And we built this furniture. They said, do you want anything on it? And I said, yes. So right here, you can come up and look at it. Right here says John 12, 21. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Just as a reminder for what my job is, that you would see Jesus at this moment. So they say, sir, we wanted to see Jesus. They didn't know what to do with that. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip then went and told Jesus, somebody wants to see you. I'm sure Jesus was like, well, bring them here. And then he goes on to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves it, his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. A beautiful picture of these people starting to come to understand their justification and what that means. You must lose your life. And let me say this, that's the most joyous verse. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. It's so joyous to be able to let go of your life, to not have to worry about it anymore, to not have to worry about your joy, your comforts, to be able to let go of your selfishness and your self-absorption and singularly put your mind on worshiping Christ and following him. And then he says, just follow me. I I don't know how you read that, but that's a grace-filled invitation. It is, well, come along then. It's not get in line And it's definitely not, if you want something to do with me, go get yourself cleaned up first, do all of these things, take these tests, and then I'll see if you can be a part of the band. No, they haven't done anything. They haven't done anything to deserve this. And he says, well, come along then. We'll do it together. Just follow me. And then serve him. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. We don't want to serve, though. We want to be served, which is why you should have bought stock in Amazon 10 years ago. And maybe some of you did. You should tithe it. (laughs) Like all of it. Um, why Why is Amazon 
so wealthy because we want a servant. We want to be able to ring a bell, press a button, and it just shows up at your front door, right? We all, we all have this desire for a butler. Ring, there it is. Don't have to shop. Don't have to look. And it's going sideways now in the sense that Instacart, anything else, I feel like I want some bananas. Press, the bananas show up at your front door. I, th- I think I want some Chick-fil-A, but I sure don't want to drive the mile and have to wait in that absurd long line where I'm going to get in a fight with the guy from California off the plane. I definitely don't want to have to do that. Andy's warned me to stay away from those long lines, so I'll just Uber it and press the button, and it just shows up. We all want a butler, and we want God to be that way for us too, don't we? I just pray this prayer, and it happens. I just say this thing, and God, you show up. That's not the gig. The gig is serve. Look, when I was in Florida, they... uh, Gosh, they wore me out. I had to speak like seven times. And, uh, and I told, that was my mistake. They said, uh, I said, when I'm with you, I'm with you for whatever you want me to do, which was a huge mistake. Um, so I, at one time I was walking into the service just kind of like, you know, hadn't had a nap, hadn't had anything, preaching, 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 doing stuff, meeting with people. And it was great. They're probably watching right now. Um, uh, and I was waltzing into the service, not quite there, and the Holy Spirit woke me up and said, Andy, you're, a, you're an ambassador for the King of Kings. I don't care that you're tired. You're here to serve these people. Get your head in the game. Get your heart back in the game. What are you doing? It is a privilege, people. You know Jesus. It is a privilege to wake up in the morning and say, it is my job to serve the Lord today. Wherever he puts me, whatever he wants me to do, in whatever classroom, with whatever comes my way, I'm going to find a way to serve my king because I'm his representative on this earth until he takes me home. It's a beautiful way to live, to follow him. Then he says, This next section, after we follow, live in the light. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And from what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come into this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it. It said that it had thundered, and the other says an angel had spoken him. But Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. I love that when the Lord speaks, people hear it as thunder. Because you always wonder, when there's thunder, you got to have lightning. Where's lightning? It's Christ. He's the light of the world. And so you have the light, and you've got the thunder. They're together, combined. It goes on, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. The order of salute is being played out. These people now realizing that you've got to be sanctified. You've got to walk in the light. You've got to persevere. But we like the darkness, don't we? We like to cover up our sin. We don't like other people to see it. When we were in California, 
just one more story about the trip. Uh, we got so sunburnt, it was ridiculous. Like, I'd never been that sunburnt in my entire life, but it was cold, and so it just didn't feel like it was hot, but that sun was really hot, and Maggie and I got so sunburnt, like blisters everywhere. Uh, you know, we apple cider vinegar every night. I got home on Monday, and you're just peeling off sheets of your epidermis. For those of you who are taking the ACT, epidermis is a good word. You're just peeling off sheets of it. And Monday, you know what I did? As soon as we got home, I called my dermatologist. And I had an appointment with him on Wednesday. I called my dermatologist, and I said, I'm going to need to cancel that appointment. And the woman said, I can't get you in for months. I said, I understand that, but I'm severely sunburned. And she silenced on the phone on the other end. And she said, I think it's best you don't come in. I said, I think so too. Like he's going to be so mad at me. If he sees me in this state, he's going to be so. So as soon as I sinned in the eye of my dermatologist, I immediately wanted to cover it up. As soon as you sin, your immediate reaction is not to bring it into the light, but to cover it up. And you've got to catch yourself at that moment and saying, how am I trying to justify myself? I can only be justified by faith in Christ. I'm going to live in the light. You see, in this cancel culture, purity culture that we have, you can't ever confess your sin. You can't ever confess what you did 10, 15 years ago. You can't ever confess that you've actually progressed and changed. You can't do any of that. But in Christianity, you can We have confession every Sunday. You're welcome to come to the cross and say, I've messed up. My view's changed. I'm, I'm a complete mess. But by faith alone, I'm justified and made right, and I don't have to hide anymore. And then lastly and quickly, we see belief and unbelief. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from him, hid himself from them. They had done many signs before them. They still didn't believe If you're not a a believer, let me just again ask this. What more must God do? Because you might say he needs to show me more signs. I would suggest he's done it all. What more must he show you? Even these people, with all the signs and all the miracles, didn't believe. So it's not more evidence that you need. It's repenting of the sin of unbelief. Unbelief is not just something that you don't have. I just, I've heard this a million times. I just wish I could believe like you, Andy. No, I don't. That's not the point. Unbelief is actually a sin. It's the sin of unbelief. And some Christians have it as well. I just can't believe that God, if I follow him in obedience, will give me joy. I can't believe he has my best interest in mind. I can't believe that his way is the right way. I can't believe that obedience is the way to go right now. It's a sin of unbelief. That's the first thing we have to learn to repent of. And then the people who started to love him, again, verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of them. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. Let me just close with these two things. What would keep you from following the Lord? What would keep you from living a life today of following and serving him? What fear is it that keeps you from obedience? 
What's your fear of man that keeps you from the glory of God?